I'm Ted O'Connell, one of the authors of Crush Step 1, the ultimate USMLE Step 1 review, along with my co-authors, Ryan Pedigo and Thomas Blair. I am also the chief content officer for Inside the Boards. This is a Crush Step 1 podcast based on the second edition of our best-selling book. The goal is to provide you high-yield and high-quality audio content of the book to help you study on the go and reclaim some of the time in your day. This is Alexander Song narrating part two of the embryology chapter. Cardiac embryology. Formation of the cardiac loop. At about 22 to 23 days, the fetal heart will begin to beat. It does this because it has now grown to a size at which diffusion alone does not meet the requirements for oxygen and nutrition delivery. Although the heart is beating, the chambers are not yet in their proper orientation. The twisting of the cardiac loop allows for the chambers to be moved into their rightful place. The proper movement of this is dependent on many genes and proper migration of neural crest cells. This is why there are many syndromes that include both cardiac abnormalities and craniofacial abnormalities. Proper migration of neural crest cells is required for both the heart and the jaw and the face to form correctly. Specifically for the heart, the neural crest cells are important for the formation of twisting aorticopulmonary septa that divide the truncus arteriosus, common outflow tract of the right ventricle and left ventricle, into the ascending aorta and pulmonary artery. Failure of proper migration of neural crest cells to the truncus arteriosus region is implicated in transposition of the great vessels and Tetralogy of Fallot. See Chapter 8. Refer to Figure 4.11 for illustrations of the various stages of fetal cardiac development. Septation of the heart. Interatrial septum formation. Understanding how the interatrial septum forms makes understanding atrial septal defects much easier. In the fetus, some passageway between the right and left atrium is always present to allow oxygenated blood to bypass the lungs by directly moving from the right to left atrium. Following along, follow along with the explanation for figure 4.12. A. The foramen primum is the first hole between the two atria. The septum primum is the first septum to form, forming across the foramen primum to close it. B. The foramen primum is now almost closed off by the septum primum, but the septum primum develops perforations in it. These perforations are now a new second set of holes. C. The perforations in the second set of holes coalesce, becoming the foramen secundum. D. The foramen primum is now closed. The second septum, the septum secundum, can now be seen developing. Defects in the septum secundum are the most common type of atrial septal defect. E. The septum secundum leaves a space between the atria termed the oval foramen, also known as the foramen ovale. F. The lower limb of the septum primum forms the valve of the oval foramen, which will later close the oval foramen when the baby is born because the left atrial pressure will increase and shut the one-way valve. G. Demonstration of the one-way valve. If left atrial pressure, as in a neonate, 
is higher than right atrial pressure, the valve should shut the oval foramen. H. Failure of the oval foramen to close leads to a patent foramen ovale, a type of atrial septal defect. Septation of the heart. Interventricular septum formation. The fetal ventricle starts as a single chamber. The muscular interventricular septum begins by forming at the apex of the heart and grows upward. Because it has not yet fully formed, there is an interventricular foramen at this time. By the end of week 7, the foramen closes when the membranous part of the interventricular septum forms. This forms by the joining of nearby tissues, including the endocardial cushion and the bulbar ridges. Vascular Embryology Blood vessels develop through two separate processes, vasculogenesis and angiogenesis. Vasculogenesis involves angioblasts grouping to form the major vessels, such as the dorsal aorta. Angiogenesis involves new vessels growing from existing ones and is a major source of vascular development. The aortic arches, as described in Table 4.1, are six paired embryologic arteries that supply their corresponding branchial arch and eventually form major adult vascular structures. They emanate from the distal part of the truncus arteriosus. Refer to Figure 4.13 for illustrations of the aortic arches and their subsequent maturation. Neuroembryology The cephalic portion of the neural tube eventually dilates into three structures, the forebrain, prosencephalon, midbrain, mesencephalon, and hindbrain, rhombencephalon. The forebrain is further divided into the telencephalon, future cerebral hemispheres, and the diencephalon, future thalamus and hypothalamus. Logically, the fetal midbrain, mesencephalon, will develop into the adult midbrain. The hindbrain is also divided into two parts, the metencephalon, future pons and cerebellum, and the myelencephalon, future medulla. Refer to figure 4.14 for illustrations of the development of the cephalic neural tube into the adult brain. Somites. Somites are primitive masses of mesoderm that flank the neural tube. This mesoderm is termed paraxial mesoderm because of its position lateral to the neural tube. Somites eventually form the vertebrae as well as some of the cartilage and musculature of the back. Pituitary gland. The posterior pituitary is a neural structure formed from the downward growth of the diencephalon. The anterior pituitary, on the other hand, develops from an outpouching of the oral cavity called Rathke pouch. Persistence of Rathke pouch may lead to craniopharyngiomas. These benign supracellar tumors may compress the pituitary, causing endocrine abnormalities or growth disturbances. They may also compress the optic chiasm, causing visual disturbance, such as bitemporal hemianopsia. Notochord Notochord is a longitudinal structure lying ventral to the neural tube that helps differentiate the ventral from dorsal axis of the spinal cord and body. It determines the polarity of the spinal cord with the help of the protein sonic hedgehog homolog which induces the formation of motor neurons along the ventral aspect of the spinal cord. The notochord persists in the adult as the nucleus pulposus of the intervertebral discs. Holoprosencephaly 
Holoprosencephaly is failure of development of midline structures as a result of incomplete cleavage of the prosencephalon into the telencephalon. In its most severe form, it is incompatible with life and results in cyclopia, absent nose, and fused cerebral hemispheres. In milder forms, midline structures may be affected, but two cerebral hemispheres develop. For example, a mildly affected individual may present with a single incisor. Holoprosencephaly may be associated with sonic hedgehog gene mutations. Dandy Walker Syndrome Dandy Walker Syndrome is a spectrum of genetic conditions presenting as loss of the cerebellar vermis and eventually dilation of the fourth ventricle. Symptoms may be surprisingly absent at birth, although absence of the cerebellar vermis often causes ataxia. As dilation of the fourth ventricle progresses, a protuberance of the occiput can be seen on physical examination. Increased intracranial pressure may also result. A ventricular shunt can be used to drain the excess cerebrospinal fluid, treat the hydrocephalus, and normalize the intracranial pressure. Arnold Chiari Malformation Arnold Chiari Malformation is a congenital herniation of the cerebellar tonsils through the foramen magnum. The cerebellar vermis also herniates in the Arnold Chiari II malformation. This herniation may occlude the passage of cerebrospinal fluid leading to hydrocephalus. It is almost always present in cases of spina bifida. Furthermore, this malformation is highly associated with syringomyelia because of altered cerebrospinal fluid flow dynamics. Refer to figure 4.15 for a gross and MRI illustration of Arnold Chiari malformation. Syringomyelia. Syringomyelia is loss of pain and temperature sensation in a dermatomal cape-like pattern around the back and arms as a result of cystic dilation of the central canal compressing the spinothalamic tract as it crosses the midline. Motor function, the corticospinal tract, is initially spared but may be affected as the syrinx expands outward. Touch and vibration, the dorsal columns, are unaffected. Gastrointestinal embryology. Table 4.2 reviews the embryologic origins of the gastrointestinal structures as discussed in Chapter 10. Allantois. Allantois is an outpouching of the hindgut that is non-functional in the human embryo and is obliterated early. It connects to the apex of the developing bladder at the proximal end and travels through the umbilical cord. The proximal portion of the allantois is termed the urachus, which spans from the umbilicus to the bladder. Once obliterated, the urachus is termed the median umbilical ligament. It continues to have no physiologic use, but may be used as a surgical landmark to indicate the midline of the abdomen. Refer to figure 4.16 for an illustration of the embryo at week 5 with the urachus present. Vitalin duct, the omphalomesenteric duct. The vitalin duct is a tube that connects the embryologic yolk sac to the midgut and provides nourishment to the embryo. It is obliterated in the seventh week but may partially persist in the form of a mechal diverticulum. See chapter 10. Cloaca. The cloaca is a terminal portion of the hindgut and the early embryologic cavity into which the gastrointestinal and genitourinary systems empty. The cloaca will later divide into the rectum and the urogenital sinus. 
Congenital diaphragmatic hernia. In a congenital diaphragmatic hernia, an incomplete formation of the pleuroperitoneal membrane of the diaphragm, usually in the left posterolateral portion, allows abdominal contents to herniate into the thorax. This herniation causes pressure on the lung buds and leads to pulmonary hypoplasia and pulmonary hypertension. Neonates will experience respiratory distress. This condition is associated with high perinatal mortality. Omphalocele Omphalocele is a failure of the gastrointestinal viscera to enter the abdominal cavity after physiologic herniation during the early fetal period. The result is a midline peritoneal-covered sac protruding through the umbilicus and containing abdominal organs. Although the condition is treatable, 40% of cases are associated with more severe problems including heart defects, neural tube defects, and chromosomal abnormalities. Omphalocele can be distinguished by the common and benign umbilical hernia, which is covered by skin, not just peritoneum. Gastroschisis Gastroschisis is incomplete fusion of the body wall leading to protrusion of gastrointestinal viscera. The protrusion is lateral to the umbilicus and is not covered by peritoneum. This condition is not associated with chromosomal abnormalities or other serious malformations. Refer to figure 4.17 for illustrations of omphalocele and gastroschisis. Renal embryology Renal embryology has three distinct phases that chronologically occur in a cranial to caudal sequence. Refer to figure 4.18 for an illustration of the developing kidney. Pronephros. In week 4, vestigial nephron-like units form and then regress without ever functioning. Mesonephros. The mesonephros system begins to develop nephron-like structures that also eventually regress. A structure persists, however, called the ureteric bud, which develops from the mesonephric ducts. This bud penetrates the metanephros to form the renal pelvis, collecting duct system, and ureters. Additionally, in males, the mesonephric ducts, also known as the Wolfian ducts, persist and will later form the male reproductive tract. Metanephros The metanephros system will form the nephrons and parenchyma of the definitive kidney. Metanephric tissue under the influence of the collecting duct system begins to form into recognizable nephrons including Bowman capsules, proximal tubules, loops of Henle, and distal tubules. By the twelfth week of gestation, distal tubules, metanephros, have connected with the collecting ducts, ureteric bud, and glomeruli have formed. At this point, urine production can begin. Importantly, the placenta, not the fetal kidney, is responsible for clearing the body of waste. Fetal urine is excreted into the amniotic sac where it is swallowed and recycled. This explains why renal agenesis leads to oligohydramnios because fetal urine is a major component of amniotic fluid. Potter sequence, oligohydramnios sequence. A decrease in the volume of amniotic fluid, oligohydramnios, causes facial deformations as a result of mechanical stress and pulmonary hypoplasia as a result of decreased nutrients and alveolar hydrostatic pressure. Oligohydramnios has many causes but usually is due to renal, ureteral, or urethral disease, classically bilateral renal agenesis. 
Knowing Potter's sequence is high yield because it shows the importance of the fetal urologic system in producing amniotic fluid and the role of amniotic fluid as a mechanical cushion and promoter of growth. Reproductive Embryology The reproductive system begins developing as paired gonadal ridges where primordial germ cells migrate and begin to form the primitive sex cords known as the indifferent gonad. The genetic determination of sexual differentiation begins at fertilization when the ovum X chromosome is joined with a sperm containing either another X chromosome XX or a Y chromosome XY. The phenotypic determination of sexual differentiation, however, begins with the gonads. The gonads will determine maturation of the duct system, Wolfian or Mullerian, external genitalia, and eventually secondary sexual characteristics. The female phenotype is considered the default, and phenotypic maleness requires the presence of testes-determining factor, the SRY gene, sex-determining region on the Y chromosome. Male Embryology The SRY gene encodes a transcription factor that causes the indifferent gonad to turn into the testes. The testes begin to produce testosterone, which influences the mesonephric duct, Wolfian duct, to form the epididymis, vas deferens, and seminal vesicles. Testosterone is further converted into dihydrotestosterone, DHT, by the enzyme 5-alpha reductase. This powerful androgen virilizes the genital tubercle and the rest of the male genitalia. Meanwhile, anti-malarian hormone is produced by the Sertoli cells which causes the regression of the malarian ducts. Referred to Table 4.3 for a list of fetal structures and their corresponding male or female adult structure. Female Embryology the absence of an SRY gene allows the indifferent gonads to turn into the ovaries by default. Absence of anti-malarian hormone in females allows the malarian ducts to remain. The ovaries begin to produce estrogen, which influences the malarian ducts to form the fallopian tubes, uterus, cervix, and upper vagina. Estrogen also causes the genital tubercle to form the lower vagina and the labioscrotal swelling to form the vulva. Urogenital sinus. By the end of the embryonic period, week 8, the ventral part of the cloaca has been partitioned off into the urogenital sinus, which will eventually form the bladder and proximal urethra. In men, it will also form the prostate and bulbourethral glands, whereas in women, it will form the Bartholin glands and the glands of skein. Hypospadias. Hypospadias is incomplete fusion of the urethral folds leading to a urethral meatus on the inferior portion of the penis. Surgery can be curative. Epispadias. Epispadias is a rare malformation in which defective migration of the genital tubercle results in a urethral meatus on the dorsum of the penis. It is highly associated with extrophy of the bladder in which epispadias is also a component. Only rarely can epispadias occur in isolation. Extrophy of the bladder. Extrophy of the bladder is an incomplete migration of the primitive streak mesoderm, abdominal wall, around the cloacal membrane leading to the bladder mucosa extending outside the body. It is always associated with epispadias. Micropenis. 
insufficient androgen stimulation from any part of the hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis results in incomplete growth of the penis, known as micropenis. It is commonly seen in Kleinfelter syndrome, genotype XXY. Cryptorchidism 3% of males will be born with an undescended testicle known as cryptorchidism. Most testicles will descend within the first months of life, and no treatment is indicated. Rarely, physiologic descent does not occur, and surgery is indicated before the age of 1 to prevent complications such as reduced fertility or testicular cancer. Most undescended testicles are located in the inguinal canal. Of note, any cause of an intra-abdominal testicle, such as androgen insensitivity syndrome, puts a patient at increased risk for testicular cancer. Uterine anomalies If the paired malarian ducts fail to fuse, the result is a double uterus, double cervix, and double vagina, known as uterus didelphus. Partial fusion results in the more common bicornuate uterus, in which two uterine cavities share a single cervix and vagina. Refer to figure 4.19 for illustrations of various uterine embryologic anomalies. Head and Neck Embryology The most distinctive feature of head and neck embryology is the development of branchial, also known as pharyngeal, arches, which will develop into the musculoskeletal components of the region. There are six paired arches composed of a sandwich with ectoderm on the outside, endoderm on the inside, and neural crest cells in the middle. Each branchial arch is supplied by its numerically corresponding aortic arch and a cranial nerve, which unfortunately does not correspond numerically. The branchial arches are separated from each other by branchial clefts. These clefts do not contribute to the adult structure except for the first, which will form the external acoustic meatus. On the endodermal side, between the pharyngeal arches, lie the pharyngeal pouches. These pouches form many structures of the head and neck. Refer to figure 4.20 for illustrations of the branchial apparatus including arches, clefts, and pouches. Table 4.4 Branchial Arch Derivatives The first branchial arch forms adult structures such as the muscles of mastication, such as the temporalis, masseter, and pterygoids, the malleus and incus bones from mechal cartilage, the tensor tympani, the maxilla, and the anterior tongue. The first branchial arch is supplied by cranial nerve V2 and V3. These are the maxillary and mandibular branches. This first arch can be simplified as the chewing and listening arch. The second branchial arch forms the muscles of facial expression, the stapes, and the upper hyoid bone. It is supplied by cranial nerve 7, the facial nerve, and this arch can be simplified as the facial expression arch. The third branchial arch forms the lower hyoid and the stylopharyngeus muscle. It is supplied by the glossopharyngeal nerve, cranial nerve 9, and can be simplified as the stylopharyngeus arch. The fourth branchial arch forms the laryngeal cartilage, specifically the thyroid and epiglottic portions. The fourth arch also contributes to the pharyngeal constrictors. 
This arch is supplied by cranial nerve 10, as well as the superior laryngeal nerve, and can be simplified as the swallowing arch. The fifth arch does not form any significant contributions. The sixth branchial arch forms the laryngeal cartilage, specifically the cricoid, arretinoid, corniculate, and cuneiform portions. This arch also forms the intrinsic laryngeal muscles. It is supplied by cranial nerve 10, as well as the recurrent laryngeal nerve, and can be simplified as the speaking arch. Table 4.5. Branchial cleft derivatives. The first branchial cleft forms the external auditory meatus. The second through fourth branchial cleft become obliterated, and failure to obliterate these clefts leads to a branchial cleft cyst. Table 4.6. Branchial pouch derivatives. The first branchial pouch forms the tympanic membrane, middle ear cavity, as well as the eustachian tube. The second branchial pouch forms the palatine tonsils as well as the tonsillar fossa. The third branchial pouch forms the inferior parathyroid gland as well as the thymus. The fourth branchial pouch forms the superior parathyroid gland. The fifth branchial pouch forms the C-cells of the thyroid. Treacher-Collins syndrome. In Treacher-Collins syndrome, lack of neural crest cell migration into the first branchial arch causes syndromic facial malformations, including micronathia and conductive hearing loss. This can be remembered because mechal cartilage develops from the first branchial arch. It forms the malleus and incus and also guides development of the mandible. Pierre-Robin syndrome. In Pierre-Robin syndrome, lack of neural crest cell migration into the first branchial arch causes syndromic facial malformations, including micronathia and cleft palate. This can be remembered because the hard palate is made partially of the maxillary bone, a first arch derivative. DeGeorge syndrome. In DeGeorge syndrome, failure of differentiation of the third and fourth pharyngeal pouches lead to absent parathyroid glands, causing hypocalcemia, and thymic aplasia, causing T-cell immunodeficiency. This syndrome is accompanied by facial abnormalities similar to first arch syndromes and cardiac anomalies, especially tetralogy of Fallot. DeGeorge syndrome can be remembered by the mnemonic CATCH-22. The C for cardiac anomalies, A for abnormal facies, T for thymic aplasia, C for cleft palate, H for hypoparathyroidism and hypocalcemia as a result of the deletion on chromosome 22. Branchial cleft cyst. Failure of obliteration of one of the branchial clefts leads to a cystic structure of the lateral neck along the anterior border of the sternocleidomastoid, most commonly, the second branchial cleft is implicated. This is called a branchial cleft cyst. Tongue. The tongue receives contributions from branchial arches 1 to 4, which explains its complex innervation pattern. Refer to figure 4.21 for a diagram illustrating the cranial nerve innervation of the tongue. 
General sensation. The anterior two-thirds of the tongue, the body, derives from the first pharyngeal arch. Therefore, sensory innervation is through cranial nerve V3, the mandibular nerve. The posterior one-third of the tongue, the base, derives from the third and partially the fourth pharyngeal arch. Therefore, sensory innervation is through cranial nerve 9, the glossopharyngeal nerve. Taste. Taste to the anterior two-thirds of the tongue is through cranial nerve 7, the corda tympani branch, whereas taste to the posterior one-third, like general sensation, is through cranial nerve 9, the glossopharyngeal nerve. Motor. The intrinsic and extrinsic musculature of the tongue, genioglossus, hyoglossus, styloglossus, and palatoglossus, is derived from occipital somites. Motor innervation is through cranial nerve 12, the hypoglossal nerve. Except for the palatoglossus muscle, innervated by cranial nerve 10. Thyroid. Thyroid tissue begins to proliferate on the pharyngeal floor and migrates down the midline of the anterior neck. It remains connected to the base of the tongue by the thyroglossal duct, which will eventually be obliterated, leaving only the foramen cecum, a small indentation at the base of the tongue. Figure 4.22 illustrates the thyroid gland migration. Thyroglossal duct cyst. Failure of obliteration of the thyroglossal duct causes a midline cystic dilation anywhere along the migratory pathway of the thyroid. This cyst will move with swallowing unlike branchial cleft cysts. Ectopic thyroid. Failure of descent of the thyroid tissue along the neck leads to ectopic tissue. Most commonly, the tissue is found on the base of the tongue behind the foramen cecum. However, it can be anywhere along the migratory path. It is subject to the same disease states as the normal thyroid, including hyperthyroidism and thyroid cancer. Ear. It is worth reviewing the various pharyngeal apparatus contributions to the ear. Branchial arch 1. Incus malleus tensor tympani muscle, which dampens sound. Branchial arch 2. The stapes and stapedius muscle which also dampens sound. Pharyngeal pouch 1. Middle ear cavity, eustachian tube. Pharyngeal cleft 1. External auditory meatus. Branchial membrane 1. This forms the tympanic membrane. Growth and development. Neonatal medicine. Apgar score. The APGAR score is a grading system named for Dr. Virginia APGAR to assess the general health of a newborn at 1 minute and 5 seconds of life. For each of the five categories, each of which start with the letters of her name, 0 to 2 points may be given. 10 is a perfect score, but it is rarely given because most newborns will lose 1 point for acrocyanosis. Table 4.7 the APGAR score for assessing the health of neonates. The first category is appearance. Zero points are given if the neonate is blue or pale all over. One point is given if the neonate appears acrocyanotic. This means the trunk is pink, but their extremities are blue. Two points are given if the neonate is pink all over. 
The second category is pulse. Zero points are given if there is no pulse. One point is given if the pulse is less than 100 beats per minute. And two points are given if the pulse is greater than or equal to 100 beats per minute. The third category is grimace. Zero points are given if there is no response to stimulation. One point is given if there is a weak cry or grimace when stimulated. And finally, two points are given if the neonate cries, coughs, or pulls away when stimulated. The fourth category is activity. Zero points are given if there is no movement. One point is given if there is some flexion of extremities. Two points are given if the neonate is active with flexed arms and legs that resist extension. The fifth category of the APGAR score are respirations. Zero points are given if there are no respirations. One point is given if there are irregular, weak, or gasping respirations. Two points are given if the neonate has a strong cry with regular breathing. Low birth weight. Infants are typically born at around 40 weeks full term with a birth weight of approximately 2,500 to 3,800 grams. This equates to 5 pounds 8 ounces to 8 pounds 6 ounces. Infants who weigh less than 2,500 grams at birth are defined as low birth weight and they are at risk for numerous complications. Because of the delicate vasculature in the subepidermal germinal matrix of the cerebral ventricles, they are at risk for intraventricular hemorrhage, which can lead to neurologic devastation in some cases. They may have abnormal blood vessels in the retina, which can lead to scarring and blindness. This is called retinopathy of prematurity. With their suboptimally developed immune systems, they are susceptible to infections, which can be severe. Small infants are also at risk for respiratory distress syndrome because of insufficient surfactant production. They are at risk for necrotizing enterocolitis, a disease in which the bowel dies and may bleed and perforate. They are also more likely than babies of normal weight to have a persistently patent ductus arteriosus, which can lead to heart failure as described in Chapter 8. Developmental Milestones Unfortunately, developmental milestones can be difficult to commit to memory. The best strategy is usually to think of your own personal experience with normal infants and children and their abilities at certain ages. A list of testable milestones along with a few mnemonics are listed in Table 4.8. The rightmost column describes Jean Paget's stages of cognitive development. He made these observations of how children's cognitive function develops by watching his own children. Refer to Table 4.8 for developmental milestones and Paget's stages of cognitive development. With that, we wrap up today's episode of the Crush Step 1 podcast. A big thank you to Elsevier Incorporated, the publishing company behind Crush Step 1, as well as all of my other books, for allowing us to put out this book in podcast format. Thank you for joining us, and please check out our other chapters.